Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Axel Himmer from the Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University of Regensburg in the year 1995. You then moved on to do a postdoc with Alan Wolf at the NIH in Bethesda. In 1999, you returned to Germany, where you became group leader at the Adolf Butenand Institute at the Ludwig Maximilians University of Munich, where you are professor since 2005, and you are still there today. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, um, how did you become interested in biology in the first place, and then in pursuing a career in science? Well, that's... Obviously, um, one thing that that um, matters when uh, you become interested in science is always the teacher in high school. In my case, um, it's probably I was probably prepared for this because um, my dad is um, a mechanic, so he's fixing cars. So techniques and machines and uh, how things work out when you construct things was always something that fascinated me because he was. A very hard worker. He was, um, you know, self-employed. So he has, a, he had a garage, and I, I spent my childhood there uh, in the garage. So I saw him fixing cars, and then at the same time, he was also a hunter. So I just followed him to go to the woods and where we actually looked at nature. So I think, and uh, this is just my interpretation, that I was very much prepared to go into natural sciences because of my love to nature and my love to understand machines. And then that was probably further enhanced by my math and my physics teachers. And, uh, and at, um, I always wanted to become um, a hunter as well. And, uh, so, and, then, and then I studied biology because I thought that's a bit of a more broad um, area uh, of natural sciences with the concept in mind that I'm going to be Jacques Cousteau, you know, just kind of being on a boat and you know exploring the deep underwater seas turned out that i was not very good in deep sea diving so that was not really an option and then i did um so i'm just and then and then i did uh, uh in my first year of university i actually um did uh what's called a, a practicum in german so i worked as a as a heavy student at the max planck institute for biochemistry where I had to cheat my way in because I was only in my first year and the, uh, and the department was not taking students until the third year of studies. So I just kind of pretended that I was slightly older and said I was in my third year, which you know led to a few embarrassing situations where I had to answer questions about lectures that I never took and just kind of wiggled my way through. But that was my first experience to the lab, which then you know I set the stage, so to say, to lab science and lab yeah. biology. Yeah, interesting how everybody finds it his way or her way into science. It's <laughs> you have to, sometimes you have to take a little detour or be creative on the way. <laughs> it's, it's nice to hear. So coming to a science uh, that centers around the identification of chromatin-associated proteins using mass spectrometry. I think that's like the general tone of your research. So next to your own lab, um, you also are... Uh, You are also the scientific coordinator of the Central Labor for 
Protein Analytic. Uh, I hope that's correct. Um, that's so correct. In, in English, the proteomics core facility, right? So, um, can you maybe give us a brief description of what it is like to run such a core facilities and what like the real challenges are in everyday work? So this is, again, you know, I, I, I take a little bit of a detour and tell you how, how this all came about. I was... Um, I was always interested in protein analytics and, and protein analysis. Already in, in Regensburg during my studies, I worked in protein folding, and protein purification, and then version to the nucleus and looked at transcription factors and isolated transcription factors. And then it was natural to go to chromatin. And when I started my own group in, um, in Munich, I couldn't, that's what I did, right? So the, my first grant proposal was to purify all histone-modifying enzymes from Drosophila extracts. This was super ambitious, and um, the reviewers said, um, you know, I mean, it's a bit over-ambitious, this grant proposal, but let him do something because he was kind of... So I had this, um, uh, you know, first grant um, uh, bonus, so to say. So I got my first grant, and then I purified a complex which later turned out to be the PRC2 complex, um, which is a, a very prominent um, complex containing uh, enhancer of zest and methylating histones at K27 as a methyl transferase complex. And, um, and then I wanted to identify those proteins that I had on the gel. And, and I figured out that there was no, you know, it was very difficult to um, get those uh, proteins identified. And many people were still doing Edmund sequencing. So then I decided, oh, you know, if nobody can actually help me or it takes forever to get it identified, I need to do it myself. And so I just went around in, in Munich and, and convinced a couple of people and said, well, listen, uh, we need to have a local lab that focuses on protein identification because there was none in Munich at that time. And then again, you know, I was lucky that that one of the professors uh, was actually threatening the university to leave, and and he could just use this as a leverage to um, to to get two mass spectrometers, um, and then that fitted just the way because I suggested to buy this, and then um, you know we went to the to the DFG and defended this this application, and then in two thousand two we got the mass spectrometers. The flip side of that was that I could not only identify my own proteins that I had purified in my uh, lab, but I actually had to offer this also to the professor who helped me getting those machines uh, and to many others because they were convinced that this was a good idea. And this is, this is when the Central Labor for Protein Analytic um, saw the light. And, and since then, we've been expanding this and it's, and it's really fun. The fun thing is that it broadens your perspective as well, right? Because you get to know many, many different projects, including chromatin projects. Now, this already leads to my next question. So what has changed over the years in terms of equipment and technology and mass spectrometry? I mean, I think the, the time when you started was in the early 2000s, right? So this is almost 15 to 20 years ago. So, um, yeah, what was it like then and what changed and how did you adapt to the new technologies? So... Um, At that time, the prime way of identifying proteins was to run an SDS page gel, cut out the band, and then do what's called a peptide mass fingerprint. So you 
do a maldeet off and then you digest with trypsin and then what you get is a pattern that's very characteristic for a particular protein. Problem is that if in this band there is more than one protein, then you're doomed because then you get a mixture and you have many peaks and, and so it's very difficult to interpret and then people started to develop or around the same time, you know, started to, you know, use more and more um, LCMS methods where you use electrospray ionization rather than laser-induced ionization. And you can put this online with a column chromatography, a reverse phrase chromatography, where you can separate those peptides and then get fragment spectra so you can sequence it. So the first two mass spectrometers that I bought, one was a Malditov um, for peptide mass fingerprinting. And that was the first things that we did. But at the same time, we also bought um, uh, an LCMS instrument where we could do chromatography um, followed by mass spectrometry. And this instrument was a nightmare to work with because it you know, not, it was state of the art at that time. So, you know, that was, you know, at that time, this was the best instrument the market could give. It was high resolution and everything, but it was a diva. So, you know, you had to, like, there were manual knobs that you had to turn. There were things, you know, you had to adjust all the voltages on each quadrupole, optimize it determine the, the distance of the chromatography column and the emitter to the orifice. It was a lot of manual work and manual cleaning. And, and you need to have skills right, just to operate the machine. It's a bit like um, at the early days of driving cars when it was like you know a major thing if someone could drive a car. Well, you have, and that, you have explosions in the engine that drive the something car, right? like this, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's you know, and you had to use the brakes, and you had two different brakes, and it was the same. So that at that time, I think I was remember like I was talking to my dad and said, you know, like, hey, you know, there's this machine we have, and it's like, oops, it's not you know working well. And so, and that was that. I think you know, besides the fact that the the instrumentation had a higher resolution so uh people um moved away from measuring time of flight like what we did still with our lcms to measuring frequencies in the orbit trap uh, around which ions just kind of um uh, modulate around a spindle uh in the mass spectrometer which you can measure much more precisely you get more accurate measurements that's all technology, and now people move a little bit back to TOF. But I think the major thing that happened is that, uh, in addition to sensitivity um, and 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 accuracy, it's the ease of use, right? So it's those instruments are much more reliable. Much, the LCMS instruments are much more reliable, easy to use. So I think. We're on the brink of at, um, when the mass spectrometers, even the high-resolution mass spectrometers, are used in such a routine way that pretty much everybody can use it, right? Then the interpretation, it's a different story, but you know, the, just the operation of the machine just is getting easier and easier. So do you think that they will be at one in one day like a benchtop MS uh, device, or is it still like far away? Oh yeah, there are benchtop MS devices, um, or well, benchtop. Right? I mean, still, <laughs> it's still the size of a, of a small fridge, I would say. Right? But they're getting smaller and smaller. So the most recent mass spectrometers that we bought for um, the facility, they are yeah, literally 
the size of of a, a small fridge, and you know they can easily fit into normal labs. So, to say. so while preparing this interview, I noticed that you're quite active in doing collaborations, probably due to your um, uh, pro being a core facility. Um, but for example, in years and years, you had some great stories together with Anja Groth and also Andreas Ladurna and and people like that. Uh, how did that influence your work? I mean, so it, you know, I mean, so, so I always had great fun collaborating with people because I'm, uh, it's my strong opinion that um, great discoveries come by discussing and exchanging ideas and result with other people. Um, so I'm, I actually really like to share my results. So if I have a good set of data, right? Good experiment. I really want to like to shout it out to the world, so to say, right? And, and it's very, very nice to then share this with other colleagues who are equally excited about the topic that you're working with. I think that's why I'm so to say prone to collaborative work because I, I really get into the, um, into the topic, right? And so um, now the thing is Anya had... Um, I mean, our collaboration goes back to the time when um, Anya was still in Genevieve Almuzny's lab. So Genevieve Almuzny, that's a bit of a historical perspective. So Genevieve Almuzny um, was a postdoc with Alan Wolf, and I was a postdoc with Alan Wolf as well. So we never overlapped, really, but Genevieve came to visit every now and then. So I got to know her. And by the time I just went to Germany and then started building up this mass spec facility, we exchanged ideas and then we started collaborating. And um, and then um, we collaborated with Genevieve. Then initially with um, one of her postdocs, Alejandra Loyola, who is from Chile. Then she started her own lab in Chile. So we collaborated also with Alejandra and with Genevieve. And then we collaborated with Anja Groth. And now we're collaborating with the postdoc of Anja Groth as well, <laughs> Constance Alabert. So it's actually very nice. And the, and the interest of this, you know, the, the scientific interest is always how histone modifications are inherited during replication and DNA repair, because you have a particular set of histone modifications And then when the cell divides and DNA replicates, you need twice as many histones just simply to package the DNA. And so this double amount of histones has to acquire the modification pattern that was present at this particular locus if that modification has anything to do with gene expression and maintenance of gene expression. And so that is the key question um, that um, we're trying to address together with, uh, let's say, the pedigree of Jean-Pierre Valmousny, right? And, and Anya and Sophie and, you know, so, and that is really fun, right? I mean, really like to um, collaborate this because also the topic is very much dear to my heart, so to say. But let's uh, come back a little bit. And, and uh, you said that in the early days, I tried to yeah, uh, purify all chromatin-modifying enzymes and all the, the things. Uh, but what you really purified was like the components or parts of the PRC2 complex. Uh, can you maybe um, go into the detail a little bit of, of that? Yeah, so... Um then, so when I was a postdoc, I started with Xenopus and Xenopus um, oocytes. Turned out that 
um, and I purified subtle transferases there, right? So um, because that was the super hot topic, right? Dave Alice had just identified GCN five as a subtle transferase, and so I purified from those from those Xenopus extracts um, uh, subtle transferases, and that was a bit frustrating because there would there were the major subtle transferase was just an acetyl transferase that prepared the histones for deposition, and I tried really hard to find additional subtle transferases, but they were not sufficiently abundant in that. So that was that was all in Xenopus. And then I just looked whether, you know, how to go back to Germany. And then I talked to Peter Becker, who then said, okay, so you can start your own group in my department, which he was about to take over in Munich. Um, however, the only thing that I ask you to do is to switch from Xenopus, because we don't have a Xenopus facility um, in the department, to Drosophila. Uh, and, you know, I thought, well, that doesn't really matter. It's an early embryonic extract. And what I'm good at and what I can do is purifying um, purifying enzymes and proteins, right? And so I started out um, in my lab and used the um, early Drosophila embryo extract um, to, to look at what enzymatic activities that are turned out that it was much richer than the Xenopus extract, right? And so that was super exciting. And then I started purifying different methyl transferases, fractionating this and, um, and then like one of the methyl transferase activities that I followed up was an H3 methyl transferase activity. And when we purified it over several columns and then at one stage um, I met a guy called Vince Pirotta, who's actually working in Polycomp on a on a Drosophila heterochromatin meeting in Italy, and and he told me, well, you know, to me that that looks like uh, enhancer of zest, right? It's the size. Remember, we had a really hard time identifying the proteins, right? So, yeah, it looks like this because, and that has a set domain, although it had been suggested that this is not a methyl transferase, you know, we just kind of followed this up. And then it turned into a real race with other um, groups that were also working on the PRC2 complex, um, Jörg Müller and Danny Reinberg. And, and so we just really um, worked our butt off to um, purify this complex from Drosophila and we just were growing large amounts of Drosophila and eventually um, all three papers were published quite highly um, and so that that was a really really super exciting um, time also because of the yeah, fierce competition. There was a Gordon conference when all the three groups presented their PRC2 um, purification. None of them had been published. And uh, yeah, that was, that was an exciting, that was an exciting time, but it was stressful also for me and also for the, for the PhD student who, who then turned out to be the first author. And then, yeah. So was that in the SUVA 3.9 um, you are talking about, right? Or is this a different... That was the PRC2. The SUVA 3.9 is um, still a bit unexplo unexplored um, territory. So SUVA 3.9 was certainly the first methyl transferase that was identified. Um, and the methyl transferase activity was located. And then I, um, I started you know, just looking at SUVA 3.9. Um, that was, in fact, the first methyl transferase that I kind of looked at because we had a good antibody from um, a lab in Halle, um, Gunther Reuter, who just gave us the antibody and we could follow it, um, purification. 
um, turned out that still by the time SUVA39 is known to be a H3K9 methyltransferase. But it's not clear whether that works in a large assembly, in a large complex, and you know what's regulating SUVA39. So in contrast to PRC2, which has very nicely described as a complex, you know, people can biochemically characterize it. SUVA39 escaped this a little bit, although it was the first metal transferase to look at this. It was it's not as well characterized as the other ones. So what did you then find about the SUVA39? Does it dimerize? Does it have any partners? Uh, what is yeah, the function? Yeah, so this is um, so. Yes, yeah, SUVA39 has has many partners. SUVA39 is um, is interacting with HP1. It's you know no matter what you do, pull downs and do hybrids, and you find many many interactors. But we still have not, and we we looked at it and purified it, but we never could purify a nice homogeneous complex that we could characterize. So um, we just kind of limited ourselves on, you know, interaction studies. And we found that SUVA39 interacts with uh, RPD3 and HDAC. So you get this concerted deacetylation and methylation of histone H3. We then used the um, the recombinant SUVA39 to characterize this a little bit. And I think there is a super, there's a couple of super exciting things that we've, never really followed up properly um, with regards to the dimerization. It seems to not only dimerize, but multimerize. Um, and so that increases the activity. Also, the purification or the generation of recombinant SUVA39 allowed us to look for inhibitors of methyltransferase. So we were the first one to actually publish uh, uh, methyltransferase inhibitors. And then there were several follow-ups that... You know, people looked at methyltransferase inhibitors, which clearly is um, an exciting thing. Also with the demethylase inhibitors, um, because those are small molecules and potential drug molecules that could actually be used for therapy as epidrugs. So why did you then stop uh, working on SUVAR? Is it just because you focused on other more interesting things or is it that a PhD student left or what is it that, that drives yeah, those decisions? So, um, so it's... Um, I probably can't give you a single answer. So clearly, you know, um, the PhD students that worked on SUVAR 39, they, they finished up and left. The inhibitor turned out to be really difficult to synthesize, um, so we couldn't chemically synthesize it. Um, that was just very tricky, and and we didn't follow up the um, the efficient or the potential efficiency um, in, in in tissues because it also had in mammals it had a, a toxic activity which was probably had nothing to do with SUVA39 but well, well, mitochondria. And then we could never really purify a complex which we could handle and look at. And so the PRC2 turned out to be a nicer um, purifiable complex. And then with the high-resolution mass spec, it allowed us to look really in detail at histone modifications and you know incorporation of histone modifications on a more broader level. And this is why... The lab kind of kind of merged a little bit into analyzing histone modifications by mass spec, then characterizing individual um, modifying enzymes. 
Okay, then let's go down this road. Um, so you you switched focus a little bit uh, into yeah what what is on your website as mentioned as the composition and assembly of uh, chromatin. <laughs> of course, I, I uh, checked out your website. Um, so one thing that uh, jumped out here is the H4K20 monomethylation because that's like not a modification that I'm yeah that comes across my worker <laughs> relatively often. So uh, yeah, what is its function? What did you find there? Yeah, so the um, the reason why we um, focus on H4K20 monomethylation is that when we, so we have this extract, this Drosophila extract, that's super powerful in assembling chromatin in vitro. It turns out that it can be used to almost reconstitute almost a nucleus, right? So, you know, you get the transcription factors binding to the correct side, you get a proper chromatin assembly, you get the remodeling factors, And so one thing we looked at is, you know, what what are the modifications that occur? And um, that is something that does not happen exactly like it happens in vivo, um, because what you see is that there is only one methylation. And the one methylation that you see during this assembly is H4K20 monomethylation. So the histones get deposited They carry two acetylations, then those two acetylations are removed in more or less random manner. And at that time, you also get H4K20 monomethylation. So we think this is kind of a mark that when histones get assembled and you get a proper nucleosome, then this Pierce's set seven um, enzyme puts on the H4K20 monomethyl and says, okay, so now you're a proper nucleosome, right? And then that recruits the deacetylases that takes off H4K12, uh, K5 and K12 acetyl, and then you, it can further mature um, in vivo. This is because this was the first methyl trans methylation that we saw in the, in the extract. We kind of focused on the H4K20 monomethylation. So is this then like the starting point? So Now um, you're a proper nucleosome and now you need to mature because yeah, like, this is the starting point of uh, post-replication uh, yeah, uh, chromatin maturation. Yeah, so, the, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's also what, what happens in, in vivo, right? Um, and this is, this is work that we've again done together with Anja Groth. Um, turns out that in vivo, in S phase, there is very little of this PRZ7 enzyme, right? So in, in S phase, you get the deposition of the nucleosomes and then you get maturation, but the H4 stays unmethylated until the entry of M phase, right? And so the function in this, like cycling cells, seems to be that the cell can distinguish G1 chromatin, which contains H4K20 methylation, mono and dimethylation, from G2 chromatin, where 50% of the H4 molecules are not methylated. So 50% are dimethylated because this is the major modification on H4 or methylation on H4, and 50% unmodified. So at this time, they can say, well, oh, this is G2 phase of the cell. So um, I can use homologous recombination for a repair, right? And many of the factors that actually mediate homologous recombination recognize the unmodified H4K20. So in a way, you know, we what we look at the Drosophila assembly extract is probably more like repair, right? Because you also have repair and then you get new histones coming in. And in G1, they probably get monomethylated quite quickly, 
you know, during repair, but in G2, they don't. Right? So uh, I think there is more to this uh, than just simply the maturation mm. effect, but that's certainly one aspect. Did at one point also compare the in vivo and in vitro situation? That's what we do all the time. Um, <laughs> so um, we've the we the in vitro system is a very special system, right? Because it's an early Drosophila embryonic system. So um, the in vitro chromatin assembly we put chromatin or DNA, naked DNA, and then let the extract assemble chromatin. In vivo, there is no naked DNA, with the exception of maybe a virus that infects and then that gets assembled. But that is something that we only touched upon, you know, in a few collaborative efforts. But the we think that in the Drosophila assembly extract, what we look at is more DNA repair, and we're now looking at the DNA repair specifically mm -hmm. together with Sophie Polo and Anya um, to see what modifications are happening there. But what we've done in the past, we looked at replication-mediated chromatin assembly. And that's that's really hard to do this in vivo, in vitro, sorry, because the Drosophila assembly extract, you know, is not really a replicate. It's a replicating extract, but it's not only assembling chromatin by replication. So is that like the thing that you're focusing on right now or moving forward in the next couple of years? Yeah, so what what... I'm currently really, really excited about is the connection between metabolic processes and histone modifications. So, is that done in collaboration with uh, Andreas Laduna? That's a collaboration with Andreas Laduna and also with a guy called Eike Latz, who's a, a immunologist working on macrophages. So um, what we did, and I, that, that was a really exciting um, collaborative project. What we did with IK was we looked at um, macrophages that are triggered by um, bacteria, you know, and, and we mimicked this, this triggering by lipopolysaccharides. So you add lipopolysaccharides to macrophages, and then they respond by just kind of synthesizing all kinds of cytokines, right? So they activate in response to the bacterial infection or what they perceive as a bacterial infection. Turns out that that is very well known that when they do this, the macrophages um, change their metabolism. They go into what's called a Warburg effect that has been described first by Otto Warburg and that's seen frequently in tumors where cells, despite the fact that there is enough oxygen, do a lot of anaerobic glycolysis. So, right? And, um, and what, what Ike had found is that at the early stages of lipopolysaccharide um, treatment, they don't have a Warburg effect, but they actually ramp up their oxidative metabolism. And so they generate more acetyl-CoA. And this increased amount of acetyl-CoA that's generated during early phases leads to an increased histone acetylation. Mm -hmm. And then this histo increased histone acetylation actually leads to a permit, you know, to a facilitation of the opening of chromatin at the cytokine genes. And that just boosts the cytokine expression of the macrophages, just this change in metabolism. And that is something that I, this was to me, it was really an eye opener. Um, and we have then 
follow this up, we looked at acetylation um, of histones during drosophila aging. Um, we're currently looking at acetylation of histones during starvation in drosophila. We look at the the methyl we the the enzymes that are involved in C1 metabolism to see how they affect circadian rhythmicity and there all those enzymes that that we learned in our you know uh, biology 101 class as being cytosolic and regulating metabolism TCA glycolysis methionine metabolism they always they all seem or many of them seem to be have a moonlighting function in the nucleus where they may actually localize, regenerate some sort of a metabolic pathway that is very strongly coupled to some modification. That's what I'm currently really super excited mm -hmm. about. And that's what we're following up. Also, because metabolisms, uh, metabolites, you can um, nicely analyze using mass spectrometry. Um, so that that is a very big tool also, you know, that we're applying our, our methods and our expertise to look at the the metabolites in vivo so what does then um, convey the specificity because you say only the cytokine genes are turned on is it the enzyme that picks up the metabolite or is it the metabolite itself that will somehow has like a enzyme specificity that only some enzymes respond to this metabolite uh, i don't think you need and i've been discussing this with colleagues a lot because this is a question that is obvious right how do you how do you get the specificity and i don't to be honest i don't think there is there is the need for specificity. Specificity of transcription is brought along by transcription factors, right? Transcription factors bind to DNA, activate transcription. However, if you now make the, the promoter more accessible in general, you make all promoters more accessible, then the genes that become activated become stronger activated. So I think the, the machinery that mediates specificity, like transcription factors and RNA polymerases and you name it, they're present. However, they always have issues accessing the promoter. If you now change metabolism such that promoter becomes more active, all promoters become more active, then the promoters that, are, that have the transcription factors that activate them strongly will be more active. So I don't think there is the need of a specific recruitment of metabolic enzymes to a particular locus in order to see this, this increased transcription, even for very specific genes. That does not mean that this may not also happen. And there are examples where metabolic enzymes are recruited to a particular promoter by transcription factors, but I, I don't think there is the need. Really. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, not everybody is so convinced about this, but you know, I think it 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 has a it has a beauty too. <laughs> at least it, uh, yeah, in my head at the moment, it uh, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, another area that is getting more traction in the last couple of years is to use epigenetic SMARC in the clinic, right? So in the last two to three years, there were numerous publications with their name on it, uh, describing among others approaches in prostate cancer and male infertility. So how do you see the use of mass spectrometry-based methods in the clinic? Is this something that can be applied widely in the in the future, or is is there still some pitfalls to that? So um, mass spectrometry is already used in the clinic, um, however, not proteome-based mass spectrometry. So 
Um, there are many standardized protocols when people look um, at uh, things like immunosuppressants, drug delivery, drug uh, composition, degradation in, uh, in blood, plasma and serum. Uh, most of it is actually done by mass spectrometry. Also, the early childhood, when you, when you look whether ch um, children have a particular um, metabolic disease like phenylketonuria, this is a, it's a, it's a rare but yet most common um, childhood disease. Then in the, in the past, this was always done by bacteria that would grow on a particular blood agar. Now this is all done by mass spectrometry. So the, the, the machines and the methods are established in the clinic. However, what is not established, and that is something that we're very actively working on, is to use to tap into the proteome, let's say, in, in plasma. Because what we think, and, and we're part of a big consortium um, here at uh, the Munich campus that includes many mass spec labs, where we would like to um, bring or, or work on bringing proteomic methods into the clinic. It's called ClinSpecM, which is just this large network. And, and we're developing standard operating procedures on how to you know, develop methods to standardize the proteomic measurements, the sample preparation, to automatize the sample preparation, and so forth. And so one thing that, uh, that also from, from my perspective, I personally think that not only that the, the proteome in general is, is helpful in, in, for diagnostics and, and decision-making in therapies, we actually, um, together with, um, so I, I, one of my former PhD students um, started a company looking at histone modifications in serums called Epicumax, and, and they collaborate with another company that, that uses antibodies um, to look at exactly this, which is called Volition. And, and we have now a paper in press that's coming out tomorrow, right? I mean, to, to like today is the 30th of March, so on 31st of March, there is a paper coming out where we can actually show that particular histone modifications can be used as markers for particular types of cancer. Um, and that is, of course, very exciting because, A, there is our expertise in looking at histone modifications and we can use mass spec, and that's what we describe in this paper, to actually see at the patterns and, and hopefully in the future we will obviously work on that, but that's just a lot of it is, is done by uh, Moritz's company where we actually use mass spectrometry to identify and go deeper into the um, histone proteome in plasma to see what what's going on and what we can learn from it. So yes, I think that the proteomics is going to go into the clinic and be very helpful um, for that. So we'll link to this uh, publication in the show notes because this episode will air after the, <laughs> the publication. Okay. Is uh, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. And the first one being, did you at one point of your career face the situation where you have reached a dead end or did you, or did not know um, how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Um, no, I don't <laughs> think, I don't know. I mean, as there, there was always, um, you know, I mean, obviously at, at the early stages, um, when you don't have a permanent job and, you know, like you wonder where, where is it going? I mean, as a postdoc, you know, am I going to become a group leader? Am I going to get a position? Can I convince people to, 
to you know give me the chance to excel, uh, then occasionally you're always a bit worried. But I never felt that there was a dead end, so to say, that I just kind of hit a wall and couldn't get any further. No. Yeah. That's fortunate, very fortunate. <laughs> yeah, I so, think so as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In the last 45 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed? Uh, I think we covered a lot. I think um, certainly the, the most important findings during my career uh, was to establish or the most important contribution, let's say, to the scientific field was to establish mass spectrometry as the gold standard method for analyzing histone modifications. This is something where I, I claim that I, that I had a contribution to it, right? I think that that is maybe fair to say. And then um, to... Oh, here's another anecdote if we still have some time. That is, I do have to so, <laughs> so, um we when i did my postdoc uh, in in the lab of alan wolf and i knew that i was going to um start my own group in back in germany um we had a uh, um a pro, uh, a professor who was doing sabbatical in alan's lab he's like major figure in in chromatin biology and i talked to him because he was kind of independent you know he was always the one who could you know, like fire back to Alan very well because he knew it all. And I, and I told him and I said, well, I, I worked on histone acetylation, but I think histone acetylation is super busy, super competitive. So I thought I'm going to work on histone methylation instead, right? Because, you know, there are not so many people working on that. And the method is essentially the same. You just use methyl SAM instead of a okay. And then he told me, ah, don't do this. This is a boring modification because methyl transferases are just kind of following the synthesis of the histones. They don't never get taken off. You just get methylation when the histones are synthesized. And um, I, descend, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to do it anyway, which turned out to be a good decision, right? Because there, there was not really literally nothing known about methyl transferases. Um, and from this, this whole concept was coming that the old professor told me, no, don't do it. So I um, decided to go against um, the opinion of a very knowledgeable and, and highly estimated, you know, I thought this was really a super clever and good guy, but I said, I'm going to do it anyway. That was the naiveness, I guess, that you have as a young group, or the boldness. And, and so everybody who wants to go into science, this is maybe the advice. And it's like, okay, trust and listen to older people that have more experience, but don't and let them don't let them discourage you from your ideas because you know that's that's maybe an advice idea that uh, yeah, maybe that answers a little bit the question of, you know, like what's good contributions. And I think that's a good point to end this interview. Thank you, Axel, for the time and for being on the show. Thank you, Stefan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, 
check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.